University of New England is embarking on a bold new mission to transform the university's decommissioned boiler house into a purpose-built discovery space. Here, on Curiosity Built the Boiler House, we'll follow the transformation of this 1950s industrial building into a regional science-themed play space. Along the way, we'll also chat with leading experts in education, play-based design, and all things STEAM about what makes for an incredible discovery space experience. I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, and for this episode, I sat down with John Marsden, the principal of both Candlebark School and the Alice Miller School in Victoria. It's interesting that the Federal Ministers for Education, since Federation, not one of them has had the slightest background in education or qualifications or knowledge of education, apart from the fact that they went to school themselves and then went to university. And so in recent years, we've had a rock star, we've had a, a lawyer who specialised in industrial relations, we've had an expert in the Murray-Darling irrigation system, we've had a farmhand who became a political consultant, that's four different people who've been ministers for education in the last 10 or 15 years, and there's others who are equally unqualified which makes for an inevitable failure by the system. John Marsden opened the Candlebark School in 2006 on an enormous property in rural Victoria, with the dream of providing primary school children with a unique school that emphasises real-world experiences as learning opportunities. Well, we wankily call it the biggest school in the world, and no one's challenged us on that yet. And in one sense, it possibly is, because it's actually on a huge acreage of about uh, 1,100 acres, and it's mostly bush, mostly native bush. It's uh, never been bulldozed or subdivided or burnt even. And um, there's a group of buildings in the uh, kind of heartland of that bush, which comprises the school. There's about 180 students here. And we, are, I mean, it's one of those schools that you can call alternative, but that word gets thrown around so loosely and so easily that it's uh, capable of any number of meanings. So I suppose we're different in that we emphasize first-hand experiences so that we believe that to be the best way of learning. And so we don't have kids confined to sitting in rows in a classroom all day, every day. They're out and about all around Australia without, uh, that sounds a bit grandiloquent, but um, certainly they do go beyond Victoria even quite often. and. Uh, they're also taught by people who have had adventurous and creative lives. So I look for teachers who have done something more than just leave school, go to uni, go back to school as a teacher. And um, their main interest in life is, I don't know, watching Bachelorette on TV. I avoid uh, people like that and try to find people who've actually been out there in the world and learned a bit about how people function and the way relationships work and about the wider world itself. So they have a sense of proportion and they have a better sense of perspective. It's nice having all the acreage, but I don't think it's essential. You can have a great school in an attic, in a tenement house somewhere, I would imagine. I haven't tried it, but uh, I don't see why you couldn't because if you have a, a room or rooms that are, that are welcoming and have a sense of security about them, and if you have teachers who give a sense of stability and uh, comfort and support to a child, then you've achieved a huge amount. And I do see these schools as, for some kids, like islands of safety, where they can spend six or seven hours a day and where they know that they will find stability. They will not be treated unfairly or harshly or abusively. 
And so that's not much. It's not as good as 24-7, but it's um, something valuable and powerful for those young people. And it's probably as much as we can do because there's no other uh, mechanisms really in our society at the moment which work effectively, which can offer anything better. I asked John what inspired him to start his own school and what's inspired the philosophy of Candlebark. I wanted to know whether there was a particular pedagogical approach that the Candlebark School adheres to. We don't have any ideology or any creed as such. We don't have any religious uh, beliefs or anything like that particularly. It's just the notion that learning, as I said, is best done as a first-hand experience by having first-hand experiences. And that came about because I started to notice that conversations that I was having with teenagers were just getting more and more boring. And I thought, well, it's either them or me, and it can't possibly be me, it must be them, and uh, which was a convenient explanation. But I did start analysing their conversations. I didn't stand there with a clipboard kind of taking notes, but I did start thinking more about what we talked about. And I started to realise that so much of their conversation was about what they'd seen on TV the night before, and about movies they'd seen. And if they told stories, it was often about what their parents or grandparents had done. And I thought, gee, they're just not having any stories of their own because they're not doing anything. And the average suburban kid nowadays, their excursion will be a trip to the mall on a Saturday afternoon or whatever with the family to do some shopping. And that's about it. And so I wanted to bring back this idea of first-hand experiences because by doing by having first-hand experiences, you're accumulating stories and you're learning and you're becoming a more interesting person, which makes it likely that you'll be a more interesting adult because your stories kind of comprise you. You are a tapestry of your stories. And the more stories you have, then the better in a way. We had a boy broke his hand a couple of weeks ago and I said to him, well, every scar tells a story and every broken bone tells a story. So, yeah, it's painful. It's not what you would have wanted, but um, in years to come, yeah, you'll look back, you'll look at the scar on your hand and think, yeah, I remember how I did that. So um, even though sometimes people might get injured or physically hurt in some way by having adventures, they're still, I think, going to be better off than people who spend their lives in cocoons or bubbles where they're protected from any sort of physical damage to such an extent that they don't grow emotionally and they don't grow socially and they don't grow spiritually even. And so, uh, yeah, that's a big emphasis. But we do, we're quite structured in some ways. We're not to free school. The kids are expected to behave courteously and they are expected to follow certain rules, but we don't have a lot of those. Um, I hate to quote uh, cheap one-liners, but that don't sweat the small stuff is not a bad mantra. And so we don't worry about whether their socks are of equal length when they're pulled up to their full extent or whether they're matching colours or whether they've done their hair properly. (laughs) And uh, in fact, the principal doesn't do his hair very neatly, I must admit. So um, we don't worry about that stuff. And that right away takes away, gee, I don't know, 60% of the conflict that occurs in schools. So we are able to concentrate on bigger issues and more profound topics and more um, exciting and adventurous possibilities. After the great success of the Candlebark School, John saw the opportunity to open a second school. He now splits his time between Candlebark and the Alice Miller School. 
I asked John what the biggest challenges have been moving from managing a primary school to a secondary school. We used to go up to year nine at Candlebark and um, then when the opportunity came up to buy a school that had gone broke and was for sale with everything included, including the library, the whiteboard markers, the whiteboard erasers and the whiteboards, then um, it just seemed too good to walk away from. And it was only 20 minutes away from Candlebark. And uh, so I bought that and that started five years ago. So it works along the same lines. The difference, I suppose the biggest difference is that because we've got teenagers there and they're from year seven to year 12, we have a different range of behaviours and a different range of problems and a different range of possibilities and uh, adventures. And so, yeah, we're just dealing with the whole kind of different vibe that comes from that. So, for example, I mentioned alcohol before. We never had that problem at Candlebark, but um, it occasionally makes its presence known at uh, Alice Miller School, as the second school is is called. Uh, so, yeah, I think the problems, the psychological problems of teenagers are often more complex and take longer to uh, for us to make progress with them. And the frequency, the incidence of psychological problems among young people seems to be increasing rapidly and the depth and profundity of those problems seems to be increasing rapidly so that we're dealing with uh, a lot of teenagers who have really quite severe problems and perhaps they were always around, they were always in schools, but I think maybe schools turned a blind eye to them or didn't want to know about them back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. But now, again, it's seen as very much part of the function of schools that we should deal with these in therapeutic ways. And we are responsible for improving the emotional health of students. And so many schools employ quite a big staff of counsellors and OTs and even visiting uh, regular doctors. There are schools, quite a number of schools in Australia now have a GP clinic in the school where a GP might come for two afternoons or a week or two half days a week, every week of the school year. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a whole new world that schools have been thrust into without much debate or discussion or consideration, but we've, uh, it's a role we've been asked or expected to take on. We haven't employed any counsellors or psychologists, but we do expect all the staff to be responsive to students who have special needs and to... Uh, be good listeners and to be kind and supportive in those situations or firm and assertive when it's appropriate. We do feel, however, that parents have to take responsibility as well. And so we do, rather than have these things dealt with entirely within the school, we do say to parents, your child needs professional help. And here are some names and uh, contact details for people who we believe are pretty good in this area. And we will actually be quite forceful in uh, making that happen. I think one of the other reasons we don't have counsellors in the school is because I fear that if you have a staff of, say, two or three or half a dozen professional counsellors, then everything will be passed on to them. It'll be like buck passing where all the teachers will say to kids who have problems, I'll oh, go and see the counsellors. And I don't want that. I want that village atmosphere where all the elders are collectively responsible for all the young people in the community. 
Now, if you're a child of my generation, the name John Marsden is probably intimately familiar to you. And if you're wondering, yes, he is that John Marsden. You may know him as the best-selling author of the Tomorrow When the War Began book series, but there's an entirely new generation of kids that now know him simply as John, the school principal. Yeah, I do collect stories because I've realised in writing fiction that to make a character come to life, you've got to do more than describe what they look like and what clothes they're wearing and what the colour of their hair is. You've got to give them stories. And so one of the tricks in writing fiction is that by the end of the book, you want the reader to close the book and say that was a good story without them noticing that there's actually 1,431 stories in that book or 816 stories in that book. And so many of the stories might be just one sentence long or a paragraph, but they contribute to a better knowledge of the character. They help enrich us in, in our understanding of the, of the color, character. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if it's a story about how they broke their finger or how they uh, dropped their boyfriend or girlfriend or how they uh, decided to choose a cheese and Vegemite sandwich for lunch instead of a strawberry jam sandwich, then these are stories which do contribute to our feeling that these are real people. And the same applies in real life, that if people don't have stories, we don't feel that they're real people because they are kind of hollow, to use a T.S. Eliot word, <laughs> hollow men. They're um, people who often seem to lack personality. They seem to lack an inner life, an inner world. And when you look into their eyes without getting too uh, melodramatic, they almost seem like they're empty. And that bothers me greatly. I think that people who have been out there in the bush, that's, you know, my first choice. But uh, they say people are either mountain people or coastal people. I'm a mountain person. But uh, it doesn't matter if you're wandering along the beach looking in the rock pools and um, watching the seagulls or if you're out in the bush looking for platypus or um, watching the, the soldier ants at work then that's all part of the accumulation of stories which will make you not only a more interesting person, but will make you a richer person, a more profound person, to use a rather wanky word, but a person who's got more interests and uh, has a, a stronger inner life because they have such greater awareness of the world and how things work and what's going on in the world. After a successful career as a writer, I wanted to know what inspired John to change directions and start his own school. I found out that John had originally trained as a school teacher, and that starting his own school has always been a dream of his. Even when I was a full-time writer, I wasn't really a full-time writer. I was going to schools and other venues every day to talk about writing or take workshops. So it could be a library, it could be a um, psychiatric hospital, it could be a jail, it could be a school. And it was all around the world, mostly in Australia, but I did get to go to schools in Southeast Asia and uh, Europe and America. And, um, yeah, so one of the advantages of that was that when I did finally, and to be honest, I got to a point after two unsuccessful attempts to start schools where I thought the only way I'm going to ever do this is to get enough money to do it myself. Because if I have to rely on fundraising and forming committees and going through these interminable processes, then it'll never happen. So if I ever get lucky enough to have enough money to be able to do it under my own steam, then that's really the only way it's going to happen. And that did happen eventually. And 
the advantage I had was that by then I'd been to nearly 3,000 schools spending half a day, of anything from half a day to probably six weeks was about the longest, I think. I stayed at one school, and that was uh, not uncommon. So in doing that, I was able to learn a lot about what worked and what didn't in schools, because although they might roll out the red carpet when I arrive, that gets rolled up again and put away pretty quickly. And so if I'm in the school for half a day or a whole day working with kids all that time, then I'm learning about the inner workings of the school pretty quickly because it's pretty evident which schools are brilliant and which ones are awful and which ones are mediocre. You can tell in, gee, somewhere between three and five minutes, I would estimate for most schools. So um, I started thinking, well, if I took everything that works and put, the, put it all in one school and didn't take anything that doesn't work, then that should be a pretty interesting school. And that's fundamentally what I've done. From the age of 14 or 15, I would sit in that classroom thinking, why don't they change that rule and why don't they abolish that rule and why don't they bring in this system or this procedure and why don't they um, re re just extend that building so that it's blah, blah, blah. And I think, why don't they do this stuff? It's so obvious. And looking back pompously and self-indulgently, I think I was right most of the time. I think most of the things I was thinking about were very sensible and would have worked. But um, there was just this absolute resistance and reluctance to change anything. So in a way, tradition, which we tend to be taught to value, is sometimes called the rule of the dead. And it is like that school was ruled by people who'd been there in about 1890 and were still controlling it. So that's when I first started to get a taste for teaching. And I had this kind of desire to do things differently and to prove that they would work. And then having flunked out of endless university courses, which you could do in those days, <clears throat> so I dropped out of uh, arts law and then started doing straight law. And then I dropped out of that and started doing straight arts and dropped out of that. And then a few years later, I started a business course at a different university and dropped out of that. And so by the age of about 28, I guess, I was thinking I'm just doomed when it comes to tertiary education. But I still had this tankering to be a teacher. And I thought, okay, I'll test myself. I'll enroll in the easiest course in Australia. And if I can't pass that, I'll give up tertiary education forever. <laughs> and so I'm sure the people at Bathurst wouldn't appreciate this, but I did choose uh, Sturt University at Bathurst and the primary teaching course, which was three years full time. And I enrolled and from the first day just loved it. And uh, that was a great course. They taught it really well. And they taught us to be subversive, which really worked for me. And they taught us to go out there and change the schools. So I was up for that. <laughs> and, uh, I've, you know, teaching, it's like uh, there are lots of bad moments. On a bad day, it's the worst job in the world. But on a good day, I think it's probably close to being the best job in the world. And luckily, there are quite a few good days. So it's exhilarating when it goes well. And when it goes badly, I don't give up or crawl under the bed and cry, although I might be tempted to. I do think, I like to think in terms of solutions. So I try to think of a way of improving the problem or solving the problem even. And you can't always do that. There's some, there are times when the magic wand doesn't work, but there are plenty of times when you can come up with a strategy which will improve the situation. And I find that very satisfying. And there is something incredibly gratifying about seeing someone progress from being 
very disturbed, very unhappy, very destructive and self-destructive to being someone who's actually starting to find life to be quite a joyous adventure. And that won't necessarily happen overnight, but it may take years, but it will happen with students who are here for long enough. And uh, generally it'll happen with anyone as long as there's some support from home. If the parents are working in a completely different direction to the way the school is heading, then that's difficult and the progress is not as uh, great or as manifest, but it can still, there can still be good progress. Telling stories is obviously of great importance to John Marsden, and he works now as a school principal, giving children the opportunity to write their own stories. That means letting them have real-world experiences that will add to their character and build their own personal life story. To do this, kids have to be allowed to explore, go on adventures, and experience risk, a possibility that's getting more and more difficult in an overprotective school system. It's amazing how in 15 years we've been operating... We've really never had a significant injury, man. The boy who broke his hand fell off a bike, but that's rare. We, I know government schools not far from here where one of the principals of such a school joked to me one day that they had an ambulance permanently parked outside the school gate. And, gee, in 15 years, yeah, we've had a few broken bones, but nothing more than that. Lots of bruises, lots of grazes, lots of cuts, but um, nothing of any great uh, catastrophic proportions. And I think that indicates that people who are adventurous learn to look after themselves and they learn to look after other people. And so they are, in fact, less likely to have serious injuries because they become self-sufficient. And that's something that is not happening in so many schools and homes around the Western world. So, for example, there was a memo sent around to all Tasmanian schools a couple of years ago telling them that they had to cut off all the lower branches of all the trees in the school grounds so that children couldn't climb them. There are Most schools now have uh, rules that you can't pick up a stick, so even a twig is forbidden. You can't swap food with other kids. If you bring a tomato sandwich to school, you can't swap it with someone who's got a Vegemite sandwich. You can't. Uh, some schools have no touching rules. They all have no running, no running rules. And so you just get this incredible emphasis on physical safety because apparently we're so frightened of of physical injury that we don't care about the emotional injuries and the other injuries which will inevitably happen as a result of that uh, over-obsession with physical harm. Given that John places so much importance on having real-world experiences that form your own life story, I wanted to know what lessons John has brought forward from his own life story and what his own school experiences taught him about being an educator. Well, it varied dramatically. I mean, grade three was horrific because we had a teacher who, looking back, I think was probably uh, would be diagnosed as a psychopath. She was um, very, she was vicious and sadistic and caned frequently and viciously to the point where blood would run down the kids' legs, including my brother's legs. Um, Grade four was a complete contrast where we had a loving teacher who was very supportive, very encouraging, and uh, she changed my life. She really, uh, <clears throat> I don't think I'd be an author today if it wasn't for her support in starting a class newspaper. And everything I wrote got published in the class newspaper because I was the editor of the class newspaper. <laughs> so I was in a very privileged and powerful position. And uh, I took full advantage and loved it. So um, 
joint editor, I should say, to be fair. And um, then I went to a very militaristic school in Sydney uh, for seven years, for grade six, right through to year 12. And that was pretty tough and uh, often very unpleasant. But my home life was not good. And so actually school, for all its toxicity, was less toxic than home. So I stayed at school for as many hours as I could until it, it well into the evening quite often because it was mainly a boarding school, even though I wasn't a boarder. And I survived that with a lot of scars, but uh, some good things happened there too. But all in all, the teaching was regimented and predictable and authoritarian and very dull. So I've, I've learned a lot about how not to teach and how not to run a school by watching and listening. The same thing happens in life, but in my own life, I never thought about this stuff consciously. I went through a tough, I don't know, 10 years after leaving school where I bounced around from a psychiatric hospital to I don't know how many different jobs, maybe 20. And they were mostly unskilled sort of jobs like cleaning lawyers' offices was one of them, uh, operating a hospital switchboard, telephone switchboard, being a motorbike courier, uh, working in an abattoir, um, loading trucks, nothing nothing more gory than that at the abattoir, um, driving trucks, delivering chickens to butchers' shops, uh, working in a chook farm, in a very bizarre job, really. So all that time, I was not happy. I was very frustrated and depressed at times and restless and um, disappointed and kind of worried that all my peers were racing ahead of me and they were all finishing their economics degrees and going off and buying blocks of flats and uh, subdividing uh, huge tracts of land in order to make money. And I thought, God, I'm going to be a pauper. I'll be homeless while they're all living in Point Piper or somewhere similar. But um, it kind of worked out differently. But I, at some point, I would at different points, I would say to myself, well, it's all part of life. You know, at least I'm I'm getting a bit of life experience, and yeah, it's tough, but uh, one day I'll, I'll look back on this and think, oh, well, it wasn't too bad, and I survived. And it wasn't until I was much older that I thought, actually, it was quite valuable. And I think the most valuable part of it was probably working in two hospitals, Sydney Eye Hospital and Sydney Hospital. And, gee, working there it was like teaching in a couple of important ways, and one was that I was dealing with people all the time, and there were people under pressure so often. And the other thing about them was that every day was different. So I never got bored. And some of the other jobs I got bored very quickly. But teaching and working in a hospital, I never got bored because every day was so unpredictable. And uh, you just never knew every minute was so unpredictable. You never knew what would happen next. Know that John has not just one, but two schools. I wanted to know how he instills these values about living an interesting, worthwhile life. One thing that John feels strongly about is making sure that the teachers he hires have themselves lived a life outside the school system and haven't just gone straight from school into a university teaching degree and straight back into the school system. Well, there's a greater likelihood that they will be less experienced in life and that their understanding of life will be quite narrow and quite limited. And there's also a greater likelihood that they will in themselves be I hate to say this, but kind of boring people. And I've been in enough staff rooms, like I said, nearly 3,000 of them, to, to know. Well, I can tell you what's going to be on the notice boards, for example, before I walk into the staff room. There'll be notices about whose turn it is to wash the coffee cups, and there'll be um, 
photos of all the kids with allergies and warnings about how you've got to make sure they don't get stung by bees. And that'll be about it. And the conversations in those staff rooms will probably be about topics like what colour dishwasher to buy next month at Harvey Norman or wherever they buy their dishwashers. And the conversations are pretty banal. And I don't want banal people. I want people who have um, got some life experience and have some uh, sense of proportion, like I mentioned before, and perspective. So that's one problem. Another problem is that they may not have travelled externally or internally. So that, I suppose I'm repeating myself a bit, that um, I want people who've either travelled physically, like they've, I don't know, floated down the Amazon on a lilo or they've um, climbed up Mount Everest backwards or something, or they've maybe not as exotic as that, but they've maybe gone to Sri Lanka or Alaska or Scotland or whatever. I want them to have journeyed inwardly as well, and I'm not sitting there in my office interviewing them trying to assess whether they've been on some spiritual quest searching for some nirvana. But if they if they show some sort of sign that they've thought about life, that they've read widely or they've gotten into music in a really uh, profound way, but uh, I want just to know that they are thoughtful and adventurous, both physically and mentally and spiritually and socially. And one of the problems is that the people who teach are the people who have succeeded in the existing system. So they, they got good marks, they got into university, they got the degrees, so the system worked for them. And so that makes them less likely to want to change the system. In some ways, you're better off to look for the people who've failed in the system because they might have more motivation to, to look really thoughtfully and directly at the system to confront it and to figure out what needs improving because we're still a long way from achieving a good model for schooling in Western society. Having spent most of his career working in schools and caring very deeply about the health and happiness of children, I asked John whether he's hopeful about the future of education and if he sees the education system changing for the better. Well, I'd like to see the model used more widely, adopted more widely. And of course, I'd like to see my own schools continue to follow this um, lively path that we've been on. I think one of the things that I find very hard to listen to is the excuses that visitors from other schools and other educational systems make when they come here and see what we're doing. And they, I will happily say, they are very full of admiration and full of amazement at what we do. And they walk around the place saying, oh, my God, this is wonderful. And, oh, gee, I've never seen anything like this. And at the end of the day, they tell me it's been great. You know, we're so uh, inspired. And I wait for the inevitable word. And sure enough, it comes along sooner or later. And that word is but. And that prefaces all the reasons why they can't possibly do the things that we do at their schools. And those reasons, I can rationally point out to them why those reasons are quite um, illusory, that in fact they could do what we do and it wouldn't be as difficult as they like to pretend. But I think there's such a conservatism, such a fear of change, but also a fear of authority. And the bureaucrats and politicians who dominate education in Australia are powerful and they're very difficult to deal with for many or most schools. And so they do intimidate schools and that makes change much less achievable. So until we can kind of recapture that spirit, 
that you would find in schools in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, where school leaders were often seen as kind of leaders of society. They were people who were articulate, they were outspoken, they had vision, they had uh, uh, the courage to speak about the kind of society that they thought we should be aiming to achieve and how we could achieve it. Now we seem to have um, retreated from that to a, a, a society where the people who run schools are often afraid of bureaucrats and administrators and they are desperate to please all the parents in the school and so that desperation leads to mediocrity or worse because unless schools have the courage to articulate what they are doing and why they're doing it and unless they have the courage to say to parents no we are not going to give in to you on this point we're not going to uh, we're not, not going to allow you to deprive your child in the ways that you want to deprive them then we will continue to see these uh, this epidemic or pandemic of psychiatric problems find out more, visit the Kendalbark School's website at kendalbark.info or the Alice Miller School website, alicemillerschool.com. This podcast was recorded on Anawan Country and is brought to you by the University of New England. To find out more about the Boiler House Discovery Space, visit uneboilerhouse.org.au. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here next time on Curiosity Built the Boiler House. Mm-hmm.